issues and problems, and we all have many. May we find our answer in you. May you be the answer to everything we experience, Lord. That would be our true act of worship. Giving you our trust, letting things out of our hands and placing them into yours. We thank you for the strength to do that, that we know that you promised to supply. In the great name of our provider, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, as we were looking at the historical narrative, the record of history of this particular epic in the in the place where God's people were in the day, and they were in a precarious place, having demanded a king that was of their own choosing, and it was very displeasing to the Lord um, for a lot of reasons <clears throat> that we've gone into over the past. But last week, as we were together, Samuel, the high priest, who was the mouthpiece of the day for God, had given uh, Saul some very explicit instructions about waiting for him to come back. And in fact, why he was to wait was that Samuel was going to come and give him the hot skinny, if you will, on the layout for the battle and the uh, uh, arising skirmishes that have been coming with frequency to, with the Philistines and all. And he just got impatient. And even though Samuel was on time, uh, Saul jumped the gun and that brought a phenomenally harsh sentence. Because when God delivers you with clarity, something to do, something to believe, something to act on, something not to do, whatever, the consequences are stern because he is a God of love. And since we can only see to the tips of our nose, if that, and God sees everything, he knows of the repercussions of things that may not seem that big of a deal to us. And so like a faithful, loving father, he disciplines his children in love to hopefully correct the situation and prevent more evil from happening. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now the day came that Jonathan, who was the son of King Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. Now, Jonathan, remember, the express reason that we were told in earlier chapters as to why the people were so adamant about having Saul as king was because he was a big dude, he was a handsome dude, and he was going to be their intimidating power and might to any country or nation that would dare come against them and how wrong they are ending up being. And so here, though, Jonathan, his son of whom we don't know much about yet at this point in history, he's forming his own recon team of two people, himself and his armor bearer. And they're going to go out and they're going to see what the Philistines are up to. And what is King Saul doing? The text tells us that he and his meager army of 600 apparently are on holiday. The king's army is both small and it's weaponless. The picture you see behind me are from my barn. These are, are uh, tools that you might use in the garden. These are the kinds of tools that they would work for farming in the days of yore, the, the big honking one. 
uh, is a matic. That's my favorite. Oh, 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 oh. I don't use it much. Sometimes I just go out there to whack things just for the fun of it. And the other thing is a scythe, which we inherited. It was just laying in the barn when we bought the place a million years ago, and there should have been a wood handle on it, but that's long gone. And, you know, there were a couple other instruments, I'm sure, that they used in farming, but that was their weaponry. And why was that? Because the Philistines had either killed or taken and exported their blacksmiths. And you say, well, why is that such a big deal? Well, in our lingo of our day, the blacksmiths were basically the arms dealers because they were the ones that were able to fashion the swords and they were able to fashion all those heavy iron instruments and spears that they would use in battle. And so they were left with their farming tools. And so with the tools to work the earth, they had little to go into battle against the highly weaponized Philistines. And that obviously is problematic. So King Saul, we're told, is back in the hood with his peeps. In verse 3, among whom were... Now, I know, you know, I tend to read very quickly over names, especially if there's a lot of names like in genealogies. But sometimes they're obviously more important than at others. Among whom Saul was hanging out in the hood with were Ahiah, the son of Ahituv, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, who was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. At first blush, it's like, okay, move along, nothing to see here. But what is just out of sight off camera, the director is focusing more on what is shaping up to be an impending massacre of God's people. And so we need to remember some of the immediate past from 1 Samuel, which is alluded to in this passage by giving us this three-name genealogy, actually four-name genealogy in verse 3. So let me backtrack just for a little bit to chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. Samuel was a child in verse in chapter 3, and he was in the care of Eli the priest, and Eli had two sons named Phinehas and Hophni. And you might remember back then that the scripture goes out of its way to numerous times tell us what wretched and rotten kids they are. Verse 10 through 14 of chapter 3. The Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, to Samuel. This is Samuel, the little boy. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord says to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And in that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew. Why was the, uh, why was this coming upon him? Because his sons, Phineas and Hophni, had brought a curse on Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So let's jump back now to chapter 14. King Saul, we were told in verse 2, is getting a tan under the pomegranate tree. Now, why such a detail like that? I mean, it would have been just as effective to say he's there under a tree. We wouldn't think anything of it would rush right by it. But no, he's there under a pomegranate tree. Well, with a little bit of speculation here on my part, pomegranates were not everyday 
uh, fruit. In fact, they were pretty much reserved for the affluent. They were a sign of luxury and of affluence. They were in short supply. And so the mention of Saul chilling under a symbol of ease and luxury could be another one of those holy barbs. Not this holy barb. but the kind of barb that is a divine jab highlighting, again, the people's choice king who is basking in luxury while the king's son, Jonathan, has gone out to battle. How perfect a slam it is such that the text makes sure that we know the caliber of Saul's peeps that he's hanging out with. The likes of Ahiah, who we're told is the son of Ahituv, who is Ichabod's brother, who in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel is so named Ichabod because it means the glory had departed. And the glory had departed because the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines. And Ichabod is the son of the infamous Phineas, one of Eli's uh, dubious duo of wretched sons who brought a curse on Eli for Eli's negligence in not disciplining them for being such wretched human beings. At the very least, it's a cautionary tale for fathers, but it's much bigger than that. The text is showing us that Saul and the tremendous trio of Ahia, Ahituv, and Ichabod are in the hood digging the scene with the gangsta lean when they're supposed to be going after the lean, mean fighting machine of the strong and powerful Philistines. Yo! Mm. (laughs) So it's only fitting that King Saul... It's history, okay? You know, like... See, I just, I remember Jeff, so he tipped me off. It's like, it's only fitting that King Saul is spotlighted vacationing with the clan of the Ichabod, of the glory gone crowd underscoring Saul's own gloryless legacy. It's a fine example of what now late uh, missiologist C. Peter Wagner called the homogeneous unit principle. Sounds great when you're writing for academia. Simply put, it means birds of a feather flock together. And all the while, dear Jonathan, the king's son, is doing the king's work, hunting down the Philistines by himself with just his armor bearer. Verse 4. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side, and the name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Sene. The one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash and on the other on the south opposite Geba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, perhaps Not demanding notice, but perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save either by many or by few. The setup at the outset of chapter 14 looks like a massacre waiting to happen. Now, Jonathan himself, 
may have had a spear, one of the few things that had been left, and perhaps Saul did too, or maybe even a sword, but his confidence wasn't in the quality of his armament, and it obviously wasn't in the superior numbers, but was in the Lord to whom he was devoted. So knowingly or unknowingly, he expresses what Isaiah the prophet would note centuries in the future history. In Isaiah 31, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. In God's omniscient and omnipotent economy, one believer plus the Lord God Almighty equals an invincible majority. When George Washington, in August of 1776, had ventured out with 8,000 men and equipment to Long Island, they got out there to mount a front to keep the British from taking over New York, which would be devastating to the whole Revolutionary War effort. As Washington was out there, the British ships of war, now you talk about awesome firepower, We're right there. I mean, right there, right offshore. And yet, coincidentally, I say tongue-in-cheek, due to extremely high winds and a continuous pelting rain, the ships, which of course are maneuvered by sail and all, were stuck, anchored where they were. So they were essentially useless. Well, the wind was a blessing, and when you read the writings of Washington and other commanders that were on the scene, they viewed it as an obvious intervention of the miraculous, wonder-working God Almighty. And yet the winds, as, as much as they rendered the British ships useless, also had a downside, and that was that it made rowing across the East River that was a mile wide, which was to the rear of Washington, separating them from the mainland, made rowing very difficult and very precarious. And they knew that they were sitting ducks because by this time the British had already basically completely infiltrated and had all uh, reasonable uh, land exits all covered. And so there they are sitting truly as ducks in a barrel. But surrender is not in Washington's vocabulary. But he realizes that they have a massacre just waiting for them, and they need to retreat. And so, beginning about 8 o'clock at night on August 29th, Washington... Now, understand that they are in relatively plain view of the British. The British can see everything that's going on, providing the weather cooperates. And so, under cover of dark, Washington comes up with the brilliant, though ridiculous, idea, feasibly-wise that they would start rowing their bateau and start evacuating the 8,000 men under cover of dark with the torrential rains and the high winds. It was a slow and arduous effort. There was no way they would be able to have the island cleared by sunup. At 11 o'clock that night, the rains stopped, the winds stopped, and there was a dead calm on the waters. Not only did it make rowing much easier, but they were also able to fill the bateau more than they were uh, able to before because of the waves sloshing over the sides and possibly sinking them. 
all again the intervention of God. As morning light came around, they had accomplished much, but there were still hundreds and hundreds of Washington's men. Once that sun peaked up, again, they would be sitting ducks. But what should coincidentally happen is that a fog started rising from the lands and rising from the East River. And one commander describes it in his writings as a fog so thick that he could not see a man clearly from six feet away. And under the cover of the fog, they evacuated. And when the fog lifted, the British were stunned that there was nobody left, nobody around. And historians agree, basically unanimously in what I've read, that had Washington got annihilated there and then, it would have been the end of the war effort, and we would be under the Union Jack. And speaking with that right funny accent, you know. That was more Scottish than British. Oh, well. Now, let me be clear about something. Because the Lord is obviously no contest for any army of the world, that does not give the Christ follower license to adopt the all-too-complacent mindset of, well, you know, God's in control. And I gotta tell you, that annoy, ask my wife, that annoys the dickens out of me. I know God is in control. But we cannot afford to nevertheless adopt this Kesarasara attitude. The what? You know what Kesarasara is? Okay, Doris Day, 1956. It was a big song. It was. Or it was. I don't know which that was. When, ready, Doris Day, here we go. <clears throat> she has a cold. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Sarah, Sarah. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. And it goes on through several other verses. And thank you. Uh, those of you who have backstage passes, I'll be in the... Goes through several other iterations of life and a little boy and the same thing. And it all comes back down to whatever will be is going to be. But you see, we do not live under this umbrella of such a fatalism as that. We live under the umbrella of an almighty God who is involved in the affairs of the world and can do whatever he determines. Absolutely. Which means that if a ragtag bunch of farmers with little more than pitchforks and shovels and hammers, but with godly motivation in the cause of righteousness and in faith in that omnipotent God, and they take on the most powerful military force in the world called the British Empire, they can win. And they did. But for that to happen, they had to be involved. They weren't standing around singing, the Union Jack will fly, will fly. They had to be involved. They had to fight. They had to sacrifice. And the toll 
was costly. As the empire kept tightening the screws on liberty and freedom, they came to the point of decision. And men like John Hancock and Sam Adams, who was not making beer at the time, were marked out for capture by the crown and for execution. And where were they holed up on that fateful night of April 18th into 19th in 1775? They were holed up in the home of Lexington pastor Jonas Clark, harboring known fugitives at risk of his own life, to be sure. And so the British send out their raiding troops to go to Lexington and Concord, yes, to try and find what they heard were uh, hordes of ammunition by the patriots, but also top on their list was to find uh, uh, um, John Hancock. Think of the insurance company. John Hancock and uh, the other guy. Sam Adams. Thank you, man. Boy. Man, oh, man. But guess who was standing very literally on the sidelines at Lexington Commons on that morning? Literally standing there observing was Pastor Jonas Clark. Not because he was chicken, but because his role was to make sure that this would turn out, if there was going to be a war, was done for godly reasons and with godly justification, meaning you must not fire the first shot. You must be firing in self-defense alone. And he was there to ensure that that took place. And the British fired first, and it was called the shot that was heard round the world. If they didn't fight with godly justification, they knew that the Lord would never take up their cause. After all was said and done and many thousands of lives spent, America was born, and all because God was in control. But it would never have happened if the founding fathers merely gathered under a pomegranate tree singing, Que Sarah, Sarah. Verse 6, Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. And then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. What? Yeah. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand our place and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. Did you see what Jonathan just did there with his armor bearer? He gave his armor bearer the theological foundation on which their security lies. They're ready to go into battle instead of, instead of mapping out military strategies first. Jonathan maps out the theological necessity of their confidence. The Lord is not restrained neither by many or by few. Now, if I'm Jonathan's armor bearer, I'm thinking uh, <laughs> a few is more than two. But the armor bearer was unshaken. 
And the language in the original is actually quite intimate. It is to say that the armor bearer replies, well, okay, back up to get, so, uh, Jonathan says, do all that is in your heart. Sorry. The armor bearer says, do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself and here I am with you according to your desire. The translation of that is something along the lines of, Jonathan, I am with you, heart and soul. Or, Jonathan, our two hearts are beating together as one. Jonathan's armor bearer is an amazingly loyal person and a man of tremendous faith himself. Jonathan's rudimentary lesson on the sovereignty of God is the only hope we ever have is that we are found to be right smack dab in the middle of the will of God. Remember this, no matter what the situation, the only hope we ever have is that we are found smack dab in the middle of the will of God. And this pertains to anything and everything that we put our hands to. Whether we are considering what career path to take or what to do with our lives when we come to that place when we no longer need to worry about a career path or whether we're trying to buy a house and thinking which house to buy or land to buy or whether to have another child or to say yes when that big question is popped, if it gets popped. But you see, the Lord, those are only big things. The Lord is not just fixated on the big things of life, the big considerations. And in fact, if he is fixated on anything at all, he is fixated on the tiniest of things. Let's hear it from his own mouth in Luke chapter 16. He who is faithful in the very, very huge, large, spectacular, important things of life. No, it's not what he says. He who is faithful in the very little thing will or is also faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. God is very, very concerned about the minutia of our lives. At the moment, Jonathan and his armor bearer are dealing with a big situation. And if they get it wrong, the consequences will be catastrophic. But this is not that presumptuous kind of faith that sometimes we can have where we just say, you know what? I believe that God's in control and he's behind us. Therefore, I'm going to name the promise. I'm going to claim the promise. And I'm just going to run out and do it with all my heart. He adds, however the Philistines happen to reply, that shall be the sign to us. Now you might remember when Gideon went into battle after the Lord, after the Lord kept reducing the number of his soldiers that when he was taken into battle, Gideon also asked for a sign. The reason I mention this is that we cannot, not appropriately, we cannot take an isolated incident out of the scriptures which occur in a narrow historical context and try to force theological precedent of normalcy on the particular thing that it happens to be that we're talking about. Meaning, asking the Lord for a certain sign to confirm a certain decision needs to be done with great caution 
with great care and with great counsel. Jonathan's plan was not a conventional strategy, but was apparently inspired by God. Verse 10. If they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. So when both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines says, behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And so the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they said, come up to us, and we will tell you something. That makes me want to roll. Here's two guys against an army that are the nasty nasties. And they're going, hey, come on up here. We got something to share with you. I mean, I, okay, that's me. I mean, I'm like, wow. Just seems, that seems crazier than anything else. God had a plan for Jonathan and his armor bearer. Verse 13, Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet with his armor bearer behind him and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer put some to death after him. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half a furrow in an acre of land and there was a trembling in the camp. Two guys and the whole Philistine army is shaking and quaking. This is not normal. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. Now, (laughs) Saul's watchman in Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude that is of the Philistines army melted away and they went here and there. They scattered. Big, brave King Saul. Jonathan and his armor bearer. But the two of them, with the God of the heavens and earth, were no match for the Philistines. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, verse 23, and the battle spread beyond Beit Avon. None of this makes natural sense. But it makes perfect supernatural sense. Battles would be won by God's people because he directly interfered with the natural operation of the nature and the world. We remember the Lord closed the Red Sea upon Pharaoh's army after, of course, having divided the waters. The Lord would send a paranoia on enemies, causing them to scatter for fear of their lives. These are other battles that have taken place. Some we've read of, some we haven't yet. He would produce the sound of a legion of warriors from the rustle of the treetops, sending the enemy into a panic, thinking that there's a massive army they're hearing march, even though they couldn't see anything. And in just a few verses later, which we're not going to get to this morning, the Philistines actually are in such disarray that they start turning their weapons on each other. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10. But he and he alone is the only hope for the world today. I close with Psalm 2. 
one of my favorite psalms. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Two verses later. (laughs) He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You plus God Almighty is a majority that can defeat anything and anyone, provided you're smack dab in the middle of his will. Jim Higgs, let me have you come on up. Jim's one of our elders here. Usually in the second service, so I'm glad you're here. We can actually see you, and they can see who you are. Thank you. I was waiting for you to say during your story, the tide comes in and the tide goes out. (laughs) The British can't hide from intensified tide. (laughs) Uh, Why don't we stand? I've done this in the second service, so I'm going to ask everybody on this side to move towards the center. So just slide over. We're going to be one church. And then on this side, everybody slide over. And uh, grab somebody's hand that you're standing near. If you should see it from here, you're quite a crowd. All right, let us have our prayer time. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We lift ourselves up to you, O God. We pray that we can be in the center of your will. Because nothing can defeat us if we're standing in your will. Father, there may be somebody here today that does not know you. We pray in Jesus' name that through the blood that was shed, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that they come to you this morning forgiven and saved by yielding their life to you. Father, we pray for those that are struggling with employment, may be searching. We pray that you supply employment for them. Father, those that have health concerns, we pray that the Holy Spirit will touch them and heal them completely. We thank you for our leadership here at Faith. We thank you for the gift that they give us, which flow down from heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.